Welcome to the Macmillan Report. I'm Marilyn Wilkes, your host, and today our guest is Professor Marcia Inhorn. She is the William K. Landman, Jr. Professor of Anthropology and International Affairs, Chair of the Council on Middle East Studies at the Macmillan Center, and a specialist on Middle Eastern gender and health issues. Professor Inhorn has conducted research on the social impact of infertility and assisted reproductive technologies in Egypt, Lebanon, the United Arab Emirates, and Arab America over the past 20 years. She is considered to be a pioneer in studying the role of technology in reproductive issues, especially in Muslim settings. And that's what we will be talking with her about today. Welcome, Professor Inhorn. Thank you for having me, Marilyn. How did you become interested in Middle Eastern infertility issues? I am a medical anthropologist, and so I'm interested in culture and health issues. And I was particularly interested in issues of stigma and social suffering, you know, things, illnesses, and problems that cause people to really have a hard time socially um, in, in their lives. And I was invited to Egypt, to rural Egypt, to be part of a study of a blinding eye disease. Uh, and I, I went there, and I, it soon became very clear to me that when you asked women about whether or not they had children, that those who did not felt a sort of shame. And I thought, infertility must be a really hard problem for Egyptian women. And so indeed, I, I went back and I did a literature review, and I found that throughout the Middle Eastern world, uh, women who were unable to have children really suffered social stigma, ostracism, and so on. And it became really the beginning. It was really the first time that a social scientist had um, studied the problem of infertility, particularly for women outside of the Western world. Mm -hmm. Mm -hmm. Um, I understand you interviewed more than 500 Muslim couples. As a non-Muslim American woman, it seems implausible that they would share such personal and emotionally painful information with you. Mm -hmm. How did you manage such a remarkable feat? Mm -hmm. Well, I've been working in the Middle East since the mid-1980s, and I think that this is where being an area studies scholar is really important, learning the language, the culture, living there, immersing yourself in the country. Um, and that's what anthropologists do. We tend to live for long periods of time. So I've lived in the Middle East for um, years now, both in Egypt, Lebanon, United Arab Emirates. And um, over the course of time, I become very familiar with um, Muslim, the religion, society, and so forth. And with infertility, for couples anywhere, it's usually such a painful personal story that when you sit privately with an infertile woman or a man or together as a couple, I think no matter where you are, often it's the first time that anybody has really asked them to tell their story. And once people are feeling confident that it's going to be private and confidential, it's often unbelievable how there's a sort of outpouring of emotion and people want to tell their story about how they married and what happened and all the treatments they've gone through. And that's really been my experience, especially working with Middle Eastern Muslim women. Um, I've hardly, I think, I've never met a woman who didn't want to talk to me about her infertility story less so with men. I actually did a major study of male infertility in 2003, and there was some reluctance for men to talk to me alone. But even so, I interviewed over 200 men who were going through infertility treatment with their wives, and it was quite remarkable the things that they were willing to tell me. Okay. In Egypt, you studied poor 
urban women and their attempts to become pregnant through a variety of means mm -hmm. as well as wealthy couples using in vitro technology. Mm -hmm. Tell us about some of your findings. Yeah, it's really an important point to make that what you can do to overcome your infertility is really stratified by your class status in society. Um, the world now has a huge in vitro fertilization industry and it's mostly a private industry where physicians are offering IVF, um, test tube baby making in private clinics, private hospitals. And so if you're a poor couple um, and you don't have the money to basically access a, tr uh, a cycle of IVF, you're, you're basically limited from one of the, the only effective solutions for, for many types of infertility. Infertility is a difficult problem to treat, actually. There really aren't that many medicines that overcome infertility, um, especially for male infertility. And so often the only solution, especially for women who've got blocked fallopian tubes as a result of an infection, the only solution for them is to do in vitro fertilization. It's expensive. In the United States, the average cost of one cycle of IVF is about $10,000. In the Middle East, it's about $2,000 to $3,000 to do one cycle of IVF. And for many poor couples, that's more than their annual salary. So that is a tragedy of um, infertility around the world for poor people. Mm -hmm. So how does infertility and its treatment work within the boundaries of the Muslim religion? It's really interesting. Islam is a religion that very much encourages science, technology, and medicine. In fact, there are many sayings about um, God created treatments so that people would use them and seek them. God created doctors so that they could use their skills to heal people. It's a very proactive, despite many stereotypes about fatalism in the Muslim religion, it's actually a very agentive activist kind of stance toward doing things to overcome problems in your life. And so with infertility, people have the notion that you must search, you must quest. My first book was called Quest for Conception and people would say, I'm searching for children you know, this is a journey that we're on. Um, and so people are very active about going to doctors and seeking therapy and seeking traditional therapies of all kinds. Um, the religion has also been very permissive toward in vitro fertilization, saying it's okay to make a test tube baby as long as you're using sperm from the husband eggs from the wife, you're making an embryo outside and putting the embryo back into the womb of the, of the wife during the, the period of marriage. As long as you're doing that, it's considered very acceptable. And this is why there's a booming IVF industry in the Middle East, in the Muslim world in general. But there are some restrictions um, in the dominant form of Islam, Sunni Islam. There's basically a ban on using third-party donors. No sperm donation, no egg donation, no embryo donation, and no surrogacy. And so for couples who need those kinds of uh, technologies, um, this is where religion sort of puts limits on your ability to go forward. Okay. Um, adoption springs to mind. Is that not an option? Yeah, adoption is really not a viable option for most people in the Muslim countries. Um, Islam, there's a great deal of discussion in the Quran and in the scriptures about being kind toward orphans, bringing them up well, raising orphans as a sort of permanent foster parent. Mm -hmm. The problem comes in trying to do what we would know as legal adoption, where you take a child, you basically give it legal uh, 
you know, parentage, you use your surname, the inheritance goes to the child, you're raising the child as if it is your biological child. That is not allowed in Islam. Um, there are limits on that, and so for most Muslim couples, um, the immediate reaction toward the question of adoption is, well, it's against the religion, so I can't go there. Having said that, there are couples who eventually do foster children permanently, but it is not a common uh, solution. And in fact, around the world, in the West, we always say, oh, adoption, you're infertile, oh, go adopt. Adoption is not an easy solution, for, even for affluent Western couples. It's become more difficult, you know, less available children. You have to go into this transnational world of adoption, which can be very costly. So adoption, um, isn't necessarily the you know obvious solution for infertility. Many people want you know to chase the blood tie. They want to have a biological child, and so often they'll go through many attempts to try treatment before they'll go for adoption. Okay, you talked um, briefly about male infertility and interviewing more than 200 males. Tell us a little bit about um, what you found there in terms of your research. Yeah, male infertility is the thing that right now fascinates me. I'm writing a book called Reconceiving Middle Eastern Manhood, uh, Islam, Assisted Reproduction, and Modern Masculinities. Because the secret is that around the world, more than half of all cases of infertility actually involve a so-called male factor. And male factor infertility is uh, the most difficult to treat. Often you can't do anything about it. And there are parts of the world where clearly the male infertility problems are more severe. I would argue that in the Middle East there's some serious problems of male infertility probably due to heavy smoking, environmental contamination, and also probably some genetic issues um, that arise. And so there's a lot of male infertility around the world and very little discussion of it. It's often very emasculating for men to admit. And often in marriage when it's discovered that it's the husband that's infertile. It becomes this big secret, deeply held. The woman is expected to share that secret, to carry the burden of the infertility on her own shoulders, to cover for her husband. And so women often do this. It's remarkable. You know, the scholarship shows that women are often the keeper of their husband's secret. It often makes marriage actually nicer because often men are so grateful that their wife will, you know, be in a childless marriage with them that often they're very loving marriages. And in fact, one of my big findings from the Middle East um, is this refutation of the stereotype that somehow an infertile marriage in a Muslim country immediately goes into divorce or something awful. Not so. I've met so many hundreds of long-term, very stable, very loving marriages, both where the husband is infertile and where the wife is infertile. And often these couples, because they are bound together by this quest, they become very connected to each other, very solidified in their union, and actually it seems to promote, in some cases, extremely happy marriages where couples say, you know, we're you know, precious to each other even if we never have children. And I've seen hundreds of marriages like that. So my book on Middle Eastern masculinity in some ways is a kind of antidote or I'm trying to argue against so many negative stereotypes that we have of Arab men. You know, I've seen hundreds of very loving, wonderful Middle Eastern men who are completely committed to their marriages and their wives. Mm -hmm. That's very interesting. Um, how about your latest research interest, um, reproductive tourism in the Middle East? What is it and why are you studying it? You know, we're now beginning to talk about this new phenomenon of medical tourism and, in my area, reproductive tourism or fertility tourism. And it basically means that people are seeking solutions for their infertility, particularly 
IVF and other assisted reproductive technologies by moving usually from one country to another or one region to another because generally there's some barrier to access in their home country. It could be a religious barrier, financial, lack of, you know, uh, treatment, legislation, whatever. And so in the Middle East, ever since I started working on infertility, I realized that people were journeying. They were coming from remote regions of Egypt. They were going across national borders. They were going to Saudi Arabia to get the, the um, hormonal medications necessary for the treatments. There was a lot of movement and mobility, people coming back to their home country um, from labor migration because they trusted the medical system in their home country more. And so I thought, this is really interesting. People are moving across borders seeking these technologies. And what became very interesting to me was the sort of Islamic issue involved. Because as I mentioned, there is a ban across the Sunni Muslim world in terms of accessing donor egg, donor embryo, and donor sperm. In the very, very late 1990s, the Grand Ayatollah of the country of Iran, Iran is a Shia-dominant Islamic republic. The grand leader um, of the Shia religion in Islam decided that he would approve of third-party gamete donation, that it was okay to use donor egg, donor sperm, and donor embryo. And so now, since the new millennium, since the year 2000, there are now clinics in Iran uh, and in Lebanon, which is a Shia-dominant country that's following the Iranian lead, these two countries, Iran and Lebanon, now offer third-party gamete donation. And so, not surprisingly, there are at least some couples Sunni Muslim couples who know that it's against their form of the religion, but nonetheless, because they want a child, they want to save their marriage, they want to have kids, they're actually traveling to Iran or to Lebanon in search of usually donor egg, less so donor sperm. So it's been really interesting to look at the movement. And last year, I spent half of the year in the United Arab Emirates, Dubai, which is a sort of global hub of all forms of movement in the Middle East. And I interviewed couples coming to a big infertility clinic. Uh, I interviewed couples from 50 different countries. In the Muslim world, outside the Muslim world, they were traveling to Dubai, hoping to access the highest technology uh, treatments for infertility. And it was really a fascinating example of globalization and reproductive tourism. Okay, one final question. What is the most important lesson you've learned through your research? I think the most important lesson is that um, people are incredible and have poignant stories and they have similar desires often no matter where you go. Uh, I think the desire for children is a very important one for people around the world and often um, it basically shows that you know the humanity if you will um, of, of men and women in places where we often don't often see the humanity. I think for me, as a Middle Eastern scholar, I see you know, so many of the wonderful attributes of people living in the, in the Middle East. And I've certainly seen it through my research, um, where people have opened up to me, they've invited me into their homes, they've been kind to me, they've shared their stories with me. And really in my writing, I try to give examples of the kinds of people I've met, very wonderful people with poignant stories and desires that I think people in the West can relate to. And so in some level, I guess, in my mission, if you will, is to sort of share the humanity of the Middle East to the Western world. 
Okay, great. Thank you so much for sharing some of your very fascinating research with us today. Well, thank you for your excellent questions. Thanks. Thank you. For more information about Professor Inhorn and her fascinating research, please visit our website at yale.edu backslash Macmillan Report. Be sure to join us again next time for another episode of the Macmillan Report, made possible through funding from the Whitney and Betty Macmillan Center for International and Area Studies at Yale.